0: To play to find out the official podcast of the dungeon world discord brought to you by myself amen also known as void light
1: on the discord and by myself arthur or art projects on the discord
0: we have got a great episode lined up for you today uh continuing on in our long ago promised three episode series of starting campaigns continuing campaigns and concluding campaigns Today, we're going to break down continuing campaigns, but not before you get in a traditional highlight. Arthur, I've got a highlight for you if you're ready.
1: Oh, I'm so excited to hear it.
0: So, a long while back in the first campaign that I ran as a GM, um, I had a a hireling, although they were, they were a fully set out character that I, that I had made, um, just as sort of a character building exercise, but I decided to throw them in as an NPC. And this character was a gnome. Uh, a very small, um, even for a gnome, child-sized character named Curio. And Curio was quite insane. They just kind of followed the PCs around, and the PCs ended up tolerating this because Curio did very useful things. Curio was, um, a warlock, although to the PCs, uh, I told them this out of character, but they just knew him as just a mysterious spellcaster, where just he, things would happen when he, when he was around. Um, and, cause he, the the basic story behind him that they eventually kind of schooled out over time, and that I made over time I did not have it planned in advance was that he had accidentally come in contact with a very eldritch uh, being a a very this cosmic mind basically, which had driven him quite insane, and that that being was basically just speaking speaking through him as his warlock patron, um, but from a very hands off point of view that occasionally just magic would flex in the universe and. Curio himself was one of the holes that it issued forth from. So in, in encounters, um, unless they specifically gave him clear instructions to do something, uh, he would just sit there, kind of gaping, and and just sort of float around, and, and sometimes get himself into harm. Uh, and they would, the players themselves would forget about him sometimes, and be like, oh, "What are we gonna do? Oh wait, we can just ask Curio to do this thing." And I never mentioned him. Like I didn't. I did not say Curio follows you. Until they said, where's Kirio right now? Then I'm like, oh, and then he drifts along. So it became this sort of like out of character kind of joke as well, that he was always with them, but only when they intended to look. Kirio is a fun character. It was fun to uh, have him only be there when they thought of him, kind of uh, not, not like a weeping angel, uh, which is, I guess, sort of the opposite, where when you pay attention to it, it doesn't move. Um, but he, uh, he, I also, he was there just sort of as like a joke or a foil at the beginning, but I did develop him into something where eventually uh, I hinted that they could fix him, uh, that the players could make him not insane anymore and, and um, save him. And they eventually went through this ritual where like, they brought him to some— because he, he got sick. It was kind of like a, a front, which we'll talk about later in this episode, where like slowly over time like things started being wrong with him, he was less useful, he was lagging behind, he was sick. And so they brought him to someone who could help him. And and two spectral forms of Kira came out, like I think one blue or one red, or I forget how I actually narrated it at the time. And they could choose either to have his... restore him to the status quo as this insane being with no personhood, or give him his memories back and his self and like learn who he really was, but he would lose all of his powers. And the PCs rather evilly, I suppose, chose to keep him... As their just insane pet, and not oh, restore God. Him, not restore his personality. That's yeah. fucked. <laughs> but um, yeah. So it and that that was very much in line with what they were like as a party. This is a this is kind of a a, a fairly evil party, or at least a very out for themselves.
1: Yeah, uh, uh, sounds party. like it. Wow. Um,
0: I wanted to uh, briefly say on like a, a sort of best practices note, though, that Curio started out. Um, uh, for at least like the first session of him being there as a GM character, and what I mean by that is distinct from an NPC is like the the GM has a character sheet and they're trying to play the game as well as GM it, and like they have their own character and their own turns and things, and I, which I quickly realized was was dumb and that I shouldn't shouldn't do like mm. uh and but and I have seen done in other campaigns where the GM kind of wants to have their cake and eat it too, and so they roll up their own character and this character follows the PCs all around and often is this sort of re which is a French term for, like, the voice of the author, or whenever the GM wants the players to have knowledge, they just make this character say it, sort of like a Gandalf character that they follow them. Mm-hmm. I've seen this done badly because you're wasting the... It's it's kind of a way of wasting the player's time. Like, that, there's this other character that makes all their own roles and is just a PC, and you're just playing with yourself. Like... Let NPCs be NPCs and let the players be the main characters. You don't have to make your own.
1: NPCs should be a vector for GM moves, not for bend bars, lift gates.
0: Yeah. If you don't, if you're, if you're GMing dungeon world, don't have a character sheet sitting there. Or if you do have it only be for like when you switch off, if that's what you're doing. And like someone else GMs, which you might be surprised, but some people do do that anyway. Yeah.
1: Um, I anticipate doing something similar actually later this summer, but we'll talk about that later. Um, well, curio the gnome sounds like a really interesting storytelling and plot hook it's given me some ideas for stuff that i might do in a game that i've got coming up but for the moment i think it's time for us not to think about new games in the future but to think about continuing games that we're already in in today's adventure workshop (laughs) So Today we're going to be talking about the ways that we keep campaigns going. What works for us, what hasn't worked for us, good tips and cautionary tales. So, Eamon, I'm curious, what is the duration of your longest campaign?
0: A year. Um, specifically, a school... Well, there, I, I the longest campaign I've ever played in was a campaign that lasted about two full school years, so maybe four semesters, and we would resume it. You know, it would take a break over the summer because we weren't mm-hmm. physically in person, but then it would resume. And the game was the same characters, but we would chunk it into seasons. And so they would say, oh, this season. And sometimes there would be a little bit of a time skip or we would level up for free, like over the summer or something like that. But it was quite a long campaign. And um, there there is advantages and disadvantages to that. I definitely think it could have been done better. Um but, yeah, the, that that campaign had an advantage that I don't think we can assume in this conversation, which is just we were a friend group, and we were going to be playing together no matter what. And it was just the choice of the friend group that no matter what was happening in fiction, like we were keeping these characters and we were just going to play. Like, that was the default. But if you want to keep like momentum, you want to keep people interested enough to keep playing in your game, that might be something you're dealing with. And you want to just keep interest in the characters and the story themselves, and not just kind of have it peter out. I think that's the the goal of what to address, especially here in this episode.
1: For sure. So, were you the GM in this group, or were you one of the players?
0: I was a player, and okay. in fact, um, I was a not a late addition because we played for. Like I said, four semesters after I joined, but they they had been playing for several weeks before I joined. Uh, So I I, I potentially missed maybe five sessions or less out of a total, like maybe 40 or more. Very
1: cool. Well, it sounds like a pretty hefty undertaking. So let's talk about how we can get that same magic in our games. I think that the keys to continuing campaigns are sort of split into two categories. There's the stuff that we do as players and GMs to keep the gameplay going, to keep the campaign fun and fresh. And then there's the stuff we do as players and GMs to make sure that the game happens in the first place, getting people around a table, virtual or real, and actually playing the game. So let's take our adventure workshop and talk a little bit about that first category, the things we do to make the game work. Now, Dungeon World provides a couple of options in this camp. Uh, the key and probably most confusing of the best of the bunch is the front system. So why don't we take a couple minutes here and just talk through fronts and try to figure out how we use them. And if, if I use them differently from you or if I use them wrong, we, you use them wrong, no one uses them right, who's to say? How do you use fronts, Eamon? I think fronts are most useful to, to myself, at least.
0: As a codified way of bringing a threat to bear. And what I mean by that is you have uh, essentially what boils down to it, just a bulleted list. And every time a six minus result is, you know what happens next. You're, um, or you know it can happen next if you choose to use that six minus result to push a front or a seven to nine result to push a front. Um, and so instead of saying like suddenly goblins charge into the room, like it kind of, Uh, forces you to use foreshadowing, right? Like, they hear something, then they smell something, then there's a hint at something, and then something's upon them, right? Or on a larger scale, you're, you're, um, you're having, like, maybe a faction come to bear. Additionally, it's uh, very helpful to me as a way to remind me to pay attention and think off screen, especially to the fact that, like, if they leave something untended, the world ticks on, even if the PCs aren't there. That, like, Joe Schmoe, the big campaign boss, isn't just sitting in his lair waiting for the pieces to walk in and challenge him. He's actively working on plans that the PCs could potentially catch him in the middle of, right? And if they don't, and if they're dallying over, like, searching the Lost Forest for, like, a magic twig to just, you know, something irrelevant, you are telling them that these things are going on. You're telling them that, like, so-and-so's plan is inching closer to fruition, right, through concrete ways.
1: Sure. And these concrete ways are referred to in the book as grim portents, as concrete things that happen that should be a warning to the players that something is going on in the world that they have an opportunity to address. But that's not the only thing that a front has. So I'm looking at a front sheet right now that I filled out for my in-person game. And I thought maybe we'd just take a look at some of the different pieces of it, talk through what we use them for, and then... See if there's anything where we're confused or where we'd like to flesh things out in a little bit more detail. Good One thing it. that I'm curious about is what do you consider to be the differentiating factors between a campaign front and an adventure front?
0: Uh, it's just scale, mostly. Um, that's that's a way of tracking things that happen sort of between sessions or over the course of multiple sessions and something that will happen uh, in a given moment. Uh, And I I honestly um, am, I guess not guilty, but my my personal preference is to, like, use a lot of tools from different systems, just because I prefer to play broadly, even though I I do love Dungeon Worlds as a home to constantly return to. So sometimes I will represent what would traditionally be a front as a clock, just from um, Blades in the Dark. I I think that's not where I first saw it, but yeah.
1: I think Apocalypse World might have it, too.
0: Right. Yeah, where... Uh, it's something is ticking to fruition, right? And what fronts have is each of those bullet points is some you you have the name and and the manifestation of what that is. So um, maybe here let's let's make an example and and we can like write. It. Oh, well, you, you have an example. What, I what have are an example in front of me. There?
1: So I'm looking at my at a front, an adventure front called Sal Saval, the Colossal Serpent described as Salceval sits atop his ancient treasure hoard deep in the central island of Parnathu. The various gems have accumulated enormous sun energy, and this power has attracted attention. So that's my description. My cast is Salceval, the colossal serpent, and then his servant, Tolem, who speaks for him. Then there are a couple of other named NPCs, various mages and whatnot. This is from the Parnathu setting that I described a couple of episodes ago in a picture of this. Now, I've got two dangers codified in this front, and I'm just going to bottom line both of them, and then we'll pick one to look at in more detail. One danger is the thieves, people people who are going to try to steal from the treasure hoard. And then the other is the growing power of the treasure hoard itself, as it absorbs more and more energy from the sun and comes closer and closer to combustion. So... These are the two dangers in my front. Is there one of those that you think we should drill down on and look at some types impending dooms and grim portents for? Um, I think I like the first one quite a bit. All right, so we'll look at the thieves. So the thieves are an ambitious organization, and their impending doom is the acquisition of power. In other words, once they get access to the treasure hoard, they will have the power to become a much, you know, a a more world-ending threat. Now, the grim portents that I have. A monstrous scream shakes the city. A local mage college begins flashing newfound wealth. Recruiting begins for another raid. And the mage college recovers the Drudming, which is the name of the really powerful gem, and parades it about the city. Those are my those are my grim portents. So each of those is an opportunity for the PCs to get hooked into it, right? The scream shakes the city. Well, we should probably figure out why that scream happened. A local mage college begins flashing newfound wealth. Maybe we could rob them. Recruiting begins for another raid. Well, maybe we should try to get our hats in the ring. And of course, the mage college recovers the mean is an opportunity to go in and reason with them or steal it or do you know just about whatever but a big flashy gem is a reasonable opportunity to get involved i like that
0: quite a bit i i think that the <clears throat> one of the advantage of fronts as uh as presented in dungeon world is it's a way to do just enough jam prep uh and, and all the all the text in the in the rules i remember first time reading the dungeon world rule book i was like yeah this this sounds really good i can see myself doing this um and not going overboard, that you don't have to write, if the PCs do X, X will happen and have a complicated flow chart or anything like that. You just have one page, you've got a couple factions on there, and mm-hmm. um, you, in play, will find out how those change. And they're easy to write, they're easy to scrap. If one of them doesn't come to bear, you don't feel like you just wasted a bunch of GM prep, and it still mm-hmm. leaves plenty of room to f- play to find out, while allowing things to still seem quite coherent.
1: Yeah. And the other thing is, ideally, you'll have multiple dangers so that when one grim portent is enough for the PCs to get involved and that danger gets sort of cut off, it probably won't impact the progression of grim portents for the other one. So you don't need to guess, oh, if they stop this grim portent at number two and this one at number three, then I have to go to this plan. And it it takes that part of your prep out of the equation because you're no longer predicting what your PCs will do, which I think is the best.
0: Yeah, you you don't want to play the. The prediction game because that's a way to have wasted prep because you predict something it doesn't come to bear what you prepared for that eventuality is thrown out I know a lot mm-hmm. of games grapple with that and it they, they tend to throw up their hands and go to a very railroady approach which if we're playing dungeon world and if we're playing to find out is hopefully not our uh, a fallback that we use yeah. too much additionally um, what if, you can still get pretty tricky and intricate with fronts if you want to you can have two fronts uh where one of them references another and if sorry i mean to uh two dangers mm-hmm. and if one of them gets to that grim portent before the other it changes the other right like maybe the goblins uh, or maybe the dragon one of its uh grim is that it eats all the goblins and it, it it becomes uh imbued with the ritual magic that they were messing with you know so if the goblins don't exist anymore if the if the dragon manages to hit that that Grimportant before the goblins uh complete theirs, right? Which is really interesting where the PC's actions can actually affect the world uh through a series of different states that it could potentially be in. Um you know, outside of what
1: they're already doing. Totally. What do you think about that? The, well, the two dangers that in this front actually have that relationship exactly. If the thieves steal the really powerful gems, then the other front, which is the the horde itself exploding and and uh, erupting the volcano in the middle of the island, that one doesn't happen because there is no concentration of power anymore. And vice versa, if the PCs get involved with preventing the collapse of the volcano due to the the horde, then the they will also already be there in the event of the attempted theft, which means they get sort of a different angle to actually be there f- before the first grim portent of that entire danger where the dragon discovers the theft because they're already at the horde doing their own thing. So, we didn't. We haven't actually played this yet, so if any of my players are listening, just forget everything you heard. <laughs> if you want to get
0: a little, I, this is technically a meta thing, but if you want to uh, get a little bit more impartial with like which fronts get priority and being advanced. So, say say something comes up in fiction and you're like, oh, I get to advance a front now. A six minus result or something else. Mm-hmm. You might even roll a die and like randomly determine which of your dangers is getting uh, the next grimport pushed. Yeah, because um, then you as the GM like say if the PCs didn't influence any of this, I literally don't know how it would
1: end up because it would
0: be randomized.
1: Totally. Cool. So those are fronts. We'll probably talk about Fronts again in future episodes because everyone wants to know more about them if the internet is any indication. But for now, I think it's time for us to move on to other elements of our Continuing Campaign's Adventure Workshop, including pushing character arcs. Now, this is a really interesting topic for me because it's constantly on my mind. It's something I struggle with. Eamon, what are we talking about here?
0: So what we're talking about is player buy-in, ultimately, and that's kind of a meta talk thing. Um, I'm not talking so much about... Uh, right here at least, of players being interested in the game, um, but players being interested in the char- their characters specifically. So they're coming back to the game because there's still something to be uh, found out. And for a lot of games, that is simply the overarching plot. Like, do we defeat the dragon? Do we not? What's in the temple? Let's find out. But hopefully that's going on as well as there being specific character things that we're interested in finding out. Like, how will... Um, you know, curio and Ottovin uh, see eye to eye since they've been having issues and they've got bonds that we want to see evolved. And we've they've got uh, a little arc going between them or someone has personal goals that tie into their alignment. And we're wanting to see, uh, what that character does, that character achieve their goal. Um, and those are uh, easy to create in a soft way. Uh, uh, you don't have to go overboard and create a whole background. Uh, I had a character, um, in that long session, in that long campaign, um, named, uh, Arden. And he, his backstory was that he was a, he was a warlock, but the price for his powers was that his, the love of his life was trapped in the Wild. And that's as far as I fleshed it out. I didn't know exactly what he did, um, to, to trap, to m- make that be that way. But all I knew is he wanted to get her back some, at some point. And so it would come up in the campaign. Like, sometimes the GM would push on that. that, that like, and it was interesting for Arden to come back because if I left the campaign, I wasn't only leaving the full story unresolved, that I would also be leaving my character's personal story unresolved. So I personally wanted to see my character's story in the context of everyone else come to bear. Um, sometimes I had to choose between the best interests of the party and learning more information about how to um, progress towards uh, freeing her, things like that. And so, uh, those these are the type of thing that um, you can easily run a story without them. But uh, asking the players, "Hey, what's a personal goal that your character might want to achieve?" and then starting to weave that into your fronts, weave that into your prep, uh, and also have that uh, be uh, interpersonal between the characters too, that they can collaborate, to help each other uh, achieve their goals, and they don't have to be super. Um, large-scale, sometimes players are very high-minded, and it's like, my character's personal goal is to become a god, right? Or my character's personal goal is to be the king of this nation. Those things sometimes are out of the scope of what you are going for in a campaign, and you just know that they won't get hit. Um, so, uh, finding the right balance there is a lot of times part of what keeps the campaign with lots of steam narratively, or what keeps the campaign uh, kind of narrow and and, and a little bit more weak in terms of what types of uh, stakes there are
1: for sure. I can't wait to see the character arcs that you start pushing in our ongoing play by post game, which by the time you out there hear this is in its second week, but as we record, this has not yet started.
0: Yeah, so. I'm excited to in, in a play by post game. Um, sometimes those things can, uh, that's what keeps people coming back period. Right. Because, um, a lot of the game is uh, chat between characters, you know, like and they can chat all they want, mm-hmm. uh, even when the GM isn't there, which which is an advantage that those that those games have that inter character relationships can be can be big.
1: Yeah, my, um, my first virtual dungeon world game actually had a separate like out of game fireside channel where when we weren't playing live over voice chat, we would have the opportunity to just have in character vignettes in play by post format that's yeah, that a really stuff's really fun yeah, yeah it's it really fun it's a great way to get those character arcs on paper too for the gm to exploit later
0: and it, it provides an avenue for people to revisit this world that they want to right which is one of the things that is important for continuing campaigns to make a world worth revisiting and ways to do it um, another thing that helps with that is just how you uh, as a gm uh coax the players into into narratively structuring the game and this touches on the next two points that I had here, which is, is your game episodic in structure or not? And what does that look like? And is there some sort of home base? Um, some games have this hardcore baked into them, right? Um, we can reference Blades in the Dark. We oh, we shall. You know, several several times in the show, but Blades in the Dark is set up such that the game assumes that you will be playing... Uh, the game in a series of scores, which is, like, missions, basically. Mm -hmm. It could be a heist or an assassination or, uh, I don't know, a drug deal, whatever. And that in between them, there's codified downtime, and then that's where the session is going to be broken, if at all. Like, ideally, you don't have to end the session in the middle of a score. Yeah. Which means that, narratively, all the players are like back at home base and stuff like that. So if you somehow need to swap out characters or character isn't there or something like that, it's so easy. It makes sense. Like maybe they're just not available for this mission or otherwise occupied, right? Or they're missing and the PCs don't know where they are or they're, they're lost in their vice and all these different things are baked into the game, um, which solves a lot of problems that other games have. Um, the default for people is to just kind of play and then when you run out of time, stop. And a lot of times that means we're literally mid-fight in a dungeon a 100 miles below the earth and so if a character suddenly disappears, it's a lot harder to, like, figure out why, right? We're, we're in a mid-fight, and someone was about to cast a spell to, like, cure me. I was passed out. And then that player's not there anymore? And and we, we wonder, like, in character, what's what's going on here? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it also makes pacing a little bit weird if we're trying to resume from a flat state, like, uh, just on a random day, we're just resuming the game, and we're in mid-fight. Like, it's hard to jump right back into that energy, um, I mean, it's good to start in a media rest and everything, mm-hmm. but if that's artificially, or if it's uh, organically so, because, like, we just happen to run out of time in the middle of something else, sometimes it cannot be ideal, and, and we can lose tone, we can we can even forget continuity of, like, oh, I forgot I was holding this thing the whole time. A lot of times it makes more sense to make the game a little bit more episodic, and sometimes it can be more cinematic that way, right? Like, that's how TV shows work. Um, a fresh start of an episode, episode technically could start anywhere, but the fact that it starts at all as an episode is a tool that can be exploited
1: that's for sure and one thing in my ongoing Blades in the Dark campaign that we've encountered is this exact phenomenon of having to stop halfway through a score and that is always a little a little bit uncomfortable to resume with the score ongoing one technique that we use to mitigate that and I'm sure we'll cover this in more detail in Meta Talk is the classic have a player describe where we left off so that it indicates what the shared context is when we get started again and also flags what players are actually paying attention to
0: so you can uh, you can do some hard framing narrative stuff too and I have experimented with this a little bit where if we don't wrap up in the session like what, what we're playing uh, the story is going to advance no matter what in the next session and what I mean by this is say we end up mid fight uh, if we have to stop playing and resume on a different day that fight it means they lost, and they're going to be waking up, like, licking their wounds, like, passed out somewhere altogether. Um, uh, th- some, some tables are like, hell, no, I would never do that. But, uh, for our table, it gave this sense of urgency, of, like, if we don't finish this fight, like, um, the moment will be lost, you know? Uh, if we don't get that treasure now, when we wake up, or when we resume, or when we, like, it's not going to be there. The opportunity will be lost. Like, we'll have to seek it out again somewhere else. Um, which... I wouldn't kill a character, right? Like, I wouldn't say, like, oh, we, uh, you know, your mom's calling you home for dinner? You're dead. You know, not, not like that. But when the game resumed, they would be waking up at camp, you know, uh, afresh, like, um, to start again. Yes. Additionally, oh, we didn't talk about home base. Um, the, uh, there being something beyond the characters... Uh, as a uh, as a thing to upgrade, as a thing to progress, as a thing to return to as sort of a, a, a meta-character is very fun and very helpful to a lot of games, especially if you want to have the game be long-term. Say, a keep that the characters are constantly uh, upgrading. I know a lot of uh, video game RPGs have this type of thing, like Pillars of Eternity, you have to upgrade uh, Cade Noir as this, like, keep that you own. Uh, in the old Baldur's Gate games, I believe there was something or other similar. And uh, in Blades in the Dark, it's your crew. Right? Like there you have a crew that presumably exists beyond just these PCs and that has its own sheet, right? That that crew is being upgraded, things like that. In this Playbook post that we're starting, the PCs themselves are the members of an adventures company called Death's Folly that they are the oldest uh, or lo- longest members of. They're the only surviving founding members. But presumably there are other members of that adventuring company, hirelings who come and go, uh, specialists who are joining the company or new recruits. Mm-hmm. And those are things that um, that sh- potentially matter to the PCs and are things for them to be invested in and that ex- persist beyond them. Yes. Right? Like I even would. if this PC leaves the game, they, they still have that there.
1: And I would just like to take a brief digression and say, may I have an apprentice, please, in this ongoing play-by-post that we're in? Because that sounds great.
0: Right here on air? Granted. Uh, Yeah! That's interesting. Um, I I like the idea that uh, paladins uh, train novice paladins, especially to see what some starry-eyed, idealistic novice would think of you, who has many great exploits, but now um, is sort of maybe a shadow of your former self? Like, we'll see. That's, That's for me. sure. But let's be careful. At least of your moral self. Let's You've be careful. Helmet, it
1: seems like we're you know? starting to plot in advance, which is the first of our five-part meta talk today. So why don't we jump over to that?
0: The uh, plotting in advance, what I meant there was more of a meta plotting. Um, certain, Not like deciding story beats in advance, but um, being realistic about what time you have available to you and what you're going to do with it. And so the plotting, I, what I mean by that is plotting out how many sessions you're going to play. Oh, sure. Or how many sessions you can play. Well, hang on. Just before, sort of we, like...
1: before we dive too deep on this, let's just contextualize what we're talking about. We're now in the second part of our two-part guide to continuing campaigns. where Now we're dealing with the social factors related to getting people into the game on a consistent basis and making sure that the campaign progresses even when the players cannot.
0: Yeah, keeping, keeping the campaign running. Even if you have this golden eyelistic situation of all the players are there all the time, yes. which is just simply not the The entire case. group There's is retired
1: and living next door to one another in a senior living community?
0: Oh, one day, Arthur, oh, one the day. the
1: dream.
0: We'd be the coolest, coolest, nerdiest seniors. Yes. Um, but... If you just sort of waltz into a campaign and just sort of like, this could go on for a thousand sessions, like, well, let's just see where it goes and just keep rolling dice and trucking along. It won't. Like, ultimately, the campaign will end at some point. And um, if you kind of plot out roughly in your head how many sessions you want to play, um, you can always play more, right? Like, if you're like, oh, I kind of have enough content here or um, I, I'm interested enough that I would definitely be invested in this for uh, for five sessions, let's say. Uh, Maybe for like a whole month of play, playing every week, and then a little bit more. Um, Then you can communicate to the players and be like, hey guys, this is what you're signing up for. Uh, I would love it if you could commit for about this time. It's okay if you can't, but like, this is kind of what you're getting into. Then people know ahead of time and they can kind of devote their energy accordingly and sort of pace themselves and you'll just get better participation. If you end that, right, you come to the end of maybe a five session arc, cool stuff happened and you're like, guys, I'm so jazzed. I want to keep going. I don't want to roll up new characters we have got great stuff here. Let's just keep going. Then you can call it season two, make it all special, you know, have a special dinner blah, blah, blah. Uh, you could do a time skip or whatever. You could see the characters, you know, a little bit down the road. You could do a prequel adventure, whatever you want. Like you've got options, but what you didn't do was just sort of say, this is a hundred session campaign. That's going to be so epic. It's going to be first level to the 10th level and got three sessions in it quit because then you kind of just feel bad, right? You, you feel like you, something is left unresolved you you something fell apart this way like your expectations
1: are realistic you know i think that's a really good technique it's one that i've employed by accident before where i played a one shot and then said this was really fun and i really like these people let's play a couple more with these characters and then we ended up finishing that campaign over the course of about a month and a half with weekly sessions and after those that month and a half of weekly sessions we said this is about what we wanted let's start a new campaign now with a, an even longer time span in mind and then we have continued doing that and now we now we play blades in the dark every week and it's great
0: I don't know what the demographic of our listeners are um, but I assume it could be sort of just anything but I definitely know this is something that varies based on uh, age as well when I was a young gamer no matter what it was if it was I mean, the earliest role-playing experiences I had was running around in the woods with sticks and giving names to different rocks, right? Like, this is the, you know, the Black Rock Mountain and I own it and you got that rock over there and, you know, stuff like that. But, um, we we would play every day and with no structure. Like, it was just, we were going to play every day, mm-hmm. whenever we see each other, and we're just going to go until, you know, eternity. Like, whatever. Whereas... um adults or um, as i've come in, into like rpgs and people more and more responsibilities being layered on and also watching people who are in their like you know 30s 40s and beyond who are still in the role playing hobby and what they do there are structures in place right that playing weekly is kind of like a norm and there's you're you're always going to be playing at a certain time just cuz everyone needs to be on the same page and additionally there's this concept of open table play um, especially playing at game stores or playing in Google Hangouts groups and stuff like that. And a lot of this, at least I personally, was exposed to through the Gauntlet community and just watching what the sort of... their cycle of putting games together was. Like, they have a, a, a Google Plus group, and you get on that group, and periodically someone like, a post saying that they're doing a new campaign, and you get onto this, like, calendar service, and you sign up for the game. And there's a certain amount of spots, and once they're filled, the game is full. And you are only committing... You commit episode by episode, or, or or session by session, where you can either sign up for all four sessions of a given arc, or five, or however many they opened all at once, and say that I'm going to play in all of these, or you can sign up just for a single one, and so th- and they term that open table play, and and this is this can be done in person too, right at a game store, like, uh, it, it, if whether or not you've been exposed to this, people do put up posters with like slots in them, people write their name and be like, hey, I'm going to play in this game, and they just sort of recruit from the community people but even if you're just with your friends um you've still got to decide how often you're going to play and you know for how long like it's important to at least give some sort of energy to that conversation
1: absolutely now you alluded to one thing in your description of the gauntlet community's approach to this which was the idea that sometimes people wouldn't show up or would deliberately say i won't be in this session how do we make Mm -hmm. our games allow for absences like that so Uh,
0: out of game, um, there, there's some stuff to consider, some meta stuff. Um, for example, like when you add a new player, are you going to, uh, through a private channel, tell them to have their character ready and, and coach them through it so then they can jump into the game from the first minute or the next time you meet up with your group, are you going to take the beginning of that session and do some character creation with that person? uh sometimes that's that's possible if if it's a, a, a system with easy character creation like dungeon world, mm-hmm. you can just have them pick a sheet and spend the first you know fifteen to twenty minutes or less of the um of a session like having them draw up some bonds and, and and check in some boxes. But if it was something like fifth edition, I would not have someone sitting there just rolling up a character when everyone else is sitting there ready to play right Additionally, you have some questions like what level do they come in as if this is a game that has levels which the Dungeon World does, not most games that we're going to play have some sort of level. Are you going to artificially have them come in as the level of the other players? There are good arguments for that. It's fun. Uh, it makes everyone on the same page. Uh, the arguments for having them come in at level one would be that could be interesting in its own way. Mm-hmm. If the party is suddenly burdened by a novice
1: well, or something mm. like that. So I, I do just want to point out, though, that in my experience, a level one character and a level five character, level nine character, whatever it is, end up having roughly the same amount of fictional impact. It's just that yeah. the toolkit is different. In Dungeon World. In Dungeon World, of course, in, yeah.
0: yeah, Which is an advantage of Dungeon World that we um, Certainly. would be remiss to just sort of take for granted. And if you're playing in a 5th edition game and you have 10th level PCs that have been playing for a long time, and Joe Schmo comes and tries to join the game for just even just a session, and you give him a level 1 character, you're really disadvantaging him. Like, the p- other players are literally going to be flying around and stuff and doing crazy things that he just can't do. And that might be not fun. Like, you have to ask them. My personal preference is the new player coming in. I just ask them, yo, what level do you want to be? Like, you can be up to the highest level uh, in this party if you care to, or less. And I th- usually the other players are adult enough to not be like, what? Why does he get these levels for free or whatever? Because it's not like you earned these levels just by showing up and playing. Like, it's just fictional stuff. Like, you- it's not like the other player somehow cheating mm-hmm. to like join the game at like a higher level. And, uh, to be fair, a lot of times people start new campaigns and they arbitrarily decide what level everyone is anyway. Hmm. So, the other consideration is, though, is um, which I'm typically as a GM more concerned with, since I have set procedures for these meta things, is fictionally how does this new player get here? Um, and typically, uh, you've got to relax the realism a little bit sometimes to say like, now a new person's here and, and we're gonna roll with it. But I like to design my campaign such that this is possible. For example, if someone in the Discord community out there decided they really wanted to join our PvP and we wanted to allow it, right? Like right now we have three players, but maybe we could have a fourth. They could, even if we were already in the middle of it, because they could be a member of the adventuring company that um, just becomes a main character, right? Or just rises to the forefront. We start caring about for some reason. Or a member of a rival company that defects and now they joined this company and they have all these hit this this knowledge of of the rivals or something and that's interesting in and of itself some campaigns are just harder to do that especially if you left off right like you were saying in the middle of a score and then a new pc has to come in you could wait until the score is resolved and they come in halfway through the session or something but ideally that wouldn't be the case you know you kind of want someone swinging in from the window and like being able to start affecting things right there because you want everyone's you know get off and play
1: That is for sure. Well, it sounds like we have some strategies in place for getting our campaigns to continue beyond those early three honeymoon sessions. So I think that's going to do it for MetaTalk. And it's time for us to take a quick right turn into Picture This.
0: So for Picture This this week... I've got something a little special. I have a, a spell that I um, that I thought up um, that I can present to you. A little custom, a custom exclusive Ooh. spell for uh, play to find out. Um, this is inspired by something that I was reading in Bornheim, which was a like a, I think a catastrophe effect or something that could happen. I think it might have been from like a monster touching you, where your player could split in half, and both halves would be operating independently and be this awkward half-person. But here it is. This is a spell. It's called Void's Rite of Rivening. Uh, And it is a third-level Dungeon World spell. And Rivening, if you don't know, something being Riven means being split or torn apart violently, which fits because what this spell does is the wizard or the caster or someone that they touch, a willing subject that they touch, or uh, an unwilling... actually, in the spirit of Dungeon World, I'll say anyone they touch is split in half down the middle into two separate parts, and this could either and both parts operate independently. Both points parts have half the hit point value of the original, whatever the original was at the time that it was split. They can operate independently, uh, and they're both under control of whatever uh, player originally had control of them. Uh, these parts. If they come in contact with another half part, um, can join together to create a new whole, and that will be under the control of, I uh, of the uh, the caster themselves or whoever the player was that was split, if they make a successful defy danger int, um, or con or whatever stat you like. Hmm. So you could take this spell in a lot of directions. So like the wizard could split themselves in half you know, to potentially uh, cast multiple spells, right? But there's the danger that one of their halves is just going to be killed because it's even weaker than before. Um, And then they just can't get that half back, and then they're just this half person. In my mind, fictionally, when they split in half, they're not just like a one-legged thing hopping around. The other uh, half is filled in by a generic and featureless sort of like uh, carbon lattice or shell. So they just sort of have this like featureless like black half that is like brittle, like dust, but still just sort of gets the job done. And if they come in contact with something else that has the same thing done to them, those dust parts evaporate and the halves snap together. Um, even if they're the, the the wrong half, so to speak. Um, and uh, you could accidentally have half of your PC be incorporated into a monster, right? Or you could have a monster incorporated into yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Or you could split the paladin in half and you could, you could have half paladin and half fighter and, and, the, and the fighter and uh and then like uh, two of those you could like, right. two half pal and half fighters and like have their abilities be shared and, yeah. and stuff like a that sufficiently a sufficiently motivated uh
1: craftsman perhaps an immolator could create a half body that is mechanical or something non-organic in nature split that and then combine it with a person in order to create a cyborg
0: right and, oh, and or two of
1: them two and cyborgs it's two, true yeah
0: two two characters right so yeah, anyway, mm. Void's right of Rivening, use it as you will. Nice. I was thinking third level sounds about right, um, yeah, but it's, you can make this ninth or first, right. like whatever you want up the stakes. It's got to.
1: that fun, high stakes, but like wild narrative implications that I think really works at an early point as a first weird thing to have access to. So I like the idea of having that on the relatively low side, three or five. Very cool. Yeah,
0: I... I'd venture to say that this is a good spell because, for me, what I would consider a good spell is something that um, has utility. Like, you could potentially use it uh, as a boon or as a, as a harmful effect, depending on if you cast it on yourself or someone else. Yeah. Uh, it has interesting drawbacks built in and is also just a little weird. Right. Like, I just like spells that, that are things that they don't have a mechanical an- analog, right? Mm-hmm. Like, a, a, a magic missile ultimately is this is gets the same job done that shooting an arrow does but the ranger and the fighter don't have a way to um split people in half at least and have them still living so.
1: well yeah i was gonna say a fighter can absolutely right. split yeah. <laughs> somebody in half i don't know what your fight is like, doing.
0: this is this is thor's axe of rivening right
1: here <laughs> yeah i've seen that movie um this is reminding me a little bit uh, just a quick digression in Go in ahead. my game right now one of the characters' reflection came through a mirror, and now they're just both in the non mirror world. So it's not like twins where he's playing two characters. It's literally he's playing one character, but there are two of them. And I've managed that from a GM perspective as he can't specify that one of his characters does something. He merely says what his character does and either both or one of them does it. And it's not, we never allow him to say, Oh, I'm going to stand and have my other guy stand on the other side of the door. And then we're both going to bash the door in. No, it's, it's very much one character sheet, one character, two physical avatars of that character in the world. And this just reminded me a little bit of that, as another weird opportunity to have multiple halves running around.
0: Not necessarily in the theme of multiple halves, but in sort of uh the idea of multiples. I just thought of a monster. Uh so this is gonna be a bonus picture this. Um the I don't have a great name for them, so here's my work in progress name. Froblins. They're they're goblins with very frog-like features, but they function like Russian nesting dolls. So there's, like, a big one, and it opens its sort of frog-like mouth, and another one can pop out, and another one can pop out, and another one can pop out. Uh, Progressively weaker but quicker versions, right? Uh, And and you might think that, oh, that's the biggest one right there, and then a massive one comes out and sort of swallows up
1: that one. Yippee! I, I like the sound of that, but also, just the mental image is really messing with my head right now. (laughs) <laughs> just just a frog shedding an outer frog like a like a dress crumpling to the ground and then he steps out of it and then the regular frog recombines back up into fully fully upright position you never know if any given froblin has a froblin inside it or not
0: <laughs> i think uh I'm going to make the the commitment here on air just to force myself to do it, but I'll write up this spell and this monster in the traditional World fashion and and put them
1: in the show notes. Sweet. Can't wait to check it out. Now it's time to check something else out. Time to check out a listener email. And I think we're going to get even more of a bonus picture of this today because once again, we are responding to Torin blood on the Discord with a simple question. Have you seen the mini setting documents floating around? What are your thoughts? So I ask, Eamon, have you seen the mini-setting document floating around? Uh,
0: I hadn't when you first broached this to me, Arthur. But as that was uh, some time earlier today, I have since. And I think it's phenomenal. There's so I much love good stuff in here. that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, we'll link it. Um, but it essentially is a bunch of pitches. So it's, it's a community document that's being built with... Um, People pitching the name of a location and a few bullet points of what makes this location special and, and flavorful, which is all you need to start making adventures there, ultimately. Yes. I think it gets right at the heart of what makes Dungeon World cool, and uh, we, we should feature some of these right Absolutely. now.
1: Absolutely. And I'd also just like to shout out to Thomas Schellenberg, who is editing one as we speak. Ooh. So, shout outs to that. And the Hanyol Bai, the legendary skyship... Um. With, with some cool stuff. I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but it, looking at these, it looks like it's got some Korean name influence. So Hanul Bae Bae B A E is that one? Uh, I think I will I will not feature that out of deference to the person who is still editing it actively, um, and I'm just going to pick one at random. uh and aim and i encourage you to do the same and we'll feature both of them and then we'll link this in the show notes oh i've got one. oh super do you want to sh- shout yours out
0: sure um we have the tower of wehrmund the wizard version 2 Ooh. by thomas schellenberg this is a cylindrical stone tower that stands tall above the surrounding tree line with windows encircling the top floor a single wooden door allows entrance into the tower Its frame engraved with arcane rooms. Inside, the tower's well-furnished. Ever-burning torches reveal disorderly piles of books and scrolls everywhere. A broken crossbow trap hanging from the ceiling. Tries and fails to shoot intruders. What other traps lie hidden here? Magical wards and puzzles guard the secrets that the wizard left behind.
1: Oh, that's very so that's a
0: fairly, uh That's a fairly classic type of setup there.
1: Totally. All right. I am going to shout out a different Thomas Schellenberg creation specifically the fjords of Njord the beautiful blue water drifts lazily between the high rock walls of the fjords peaceful green grass and blossoming flowers line the landscape an old stave church with deep blue walls sits in a valley where the gentle waters meet the grassy shore kelp grows along the southern wall A flock of parrots perch among the nearby trees, but they're not native to these lands. Why are they here? And is that blood dripping from their beaks? So, shout out to Thomas Schellenberg for really being, just by sheer numbers alone, MVP of this document, as far as I can tell. And also to all the other contributors. These all look great. I might have to write up a couple of ideas and throw them in here as well. And then we'll. Can uh, I feature uh, another one? Oh yeah, absolutely.
0: So this is by Logan Howard, uh, Hraken's Pass or Hraken's Pass. Stone cockroaches the size of horses, scattered and half buried along the valley floor. Mm. A dense and acrid fog that never completely dissipates. Mm. The sound of shuffling and whispering cuts off whenever you stop to listen. Mm. A lot of these, a lot of these seem to be falling into. Um, three bullet points and that makes me think of almost a haiku especially the ones that are very short these are sort of adventure haikus and the best ones or at least my favorite ones in this are ones that they leave something suggested at but um uncertain for example like why are the cockroaches that big and what else is lying buried is why are they made of stone here's one more from me at least that will um kind of uh show what i'm getting at here this is by um Yohai-gal? Am I saying that right? Yohai-gal is how I've been
1: indicated to pronounce that.
0: Yohai-gal, our dear friend, he brings us Kore, a lakeside village with thatched roofs, smiling denizens, and warm taverns. A large clock tower in the center of town. When it strikes 9pm, the place is deserted black sludge is stuck to some of the nearby fishing boats, which are mostly empty. Ooh. And that's it. So it clearly it just sketches out the idea of a town where something's going Spooky. on. Right? Like you don't know what you play to find
1: out. Very cool. And speaking of play to find out, I think that's all we have for you today. If you've enjoyed our show and would like to help us out, leave us a review on iTunes. Just let us know how we're doing, what you like about it, what you, you know, would like to see more of. And we'll be keeping an eye out for that. So far, we've been really happy to see the reviews that we've received, and of course, I expect us to continue being happy as we see more and more of them trickle in.
0: Arthur, I just had a crazy idea. Oh, maybe, maybe maybe the end of the episode is, is is the time for crazy ideas. I don't know, but uh, this is a, a sort of a go as we please, like play to find out type of, type yeah, of podcast. yeah crazy ideas what if we had a, what, about. what if we had a a real just friendly friendly competition no big deal um spell contest people pm us their custom spells and for a chance to get them read on the Ooh. air and potentially to uh join us on the show to talk about
1: something. i like it that sounds like a plan
0: i don't i know we haven't had any contests yet so yeah you're you're totally hearing us just spitball this Live. Cool, and, well, and live, the prize is an opportunity
1: air. to read out your spell live on air with us. Maybe get interviewed about it.
0: And whatever you send us, um, if, they're, if they're great, which I assume they will be, if they're um,
1: deliciously flavorful spells, we'll compile them into the, uh, the Art and Void spellbook. Yes, the official Play to Find Out spellbook. I'd like to suggest one more element of this, though. Rather Go than sending it. them to us privately, I think one way for us to have a little bit of fun with this might be... For uh, for us to see them as tweets, tweet at the show Ooh, play yes. numeral two find out on Twitter with your spell with hashtag spell contest, which we're making up right now. So we'll see how this goes. hashtag spell contest at play numeral two find out, and let us know what your crazy spell ideas are. Can the hashtag be spell to find out? I do like that. Is it spelled with the number two or the word 2 Let's go with the number two just because it matches. Around. I think that it makes sense. Around. Also, we'll have all this information in a in an available text form probably on the Twitter itself, which we will also link to from the show notes.
0: And probably in the description, I imagine. Additionally, if you don't have a Twitter uh, or a Twitter account, I should say, you can post into the um, Discord um in the podcast channel, your spell and I will tweet it from the I will tweet it giving you credit under whatever name you prefer into the uh, into our play to find out Twitter yes. account with, and we we reserve the right discord, to
1: not but... copy your spells into the at play to find out Twitter account though.
0: True. Additionally, um, if you have no discord somehow but you do have a Twitter and you tweet at me i'll I'll put that into the podcast channel just for everyone to enjoy there all in one place
1: sounds good although let us know that you want it copied over uh we don't want to spam the podcast channel with all the spells that we're going to get because we're going to get so many of them right at least four four is a a reasonable number to shoot for i think we can beat four with your help but that's going to do it for us today once again i've been arthur or art projects i have been aemon or void light thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next week (laughs)